Hello, and welcome to this FRDH podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. I went down to Parliament this week to record the first rough draft of history as Parliament finally got to vote on the withdrawal agreement from the EU, negotiated by Theresa May's government. British politics has been in crisis mode since the Brexit vote two and a half years ago, although it doesn't always feel like it. The British, unlike the French, know how to do a political crisis. In France, they set Paris on fire. In Britain, they have a carnival. Outside Parliament, on the day of the Brexit deal vote, there was lots of noise and preachers trying to bring the godless to Jesus via Brexit and friendly argument between people who voted to leave and those who want to remain. He's going to come over. We're just chatting. Yeah, no, we were just having a conversation. Oh, right. Sorry. Because <laughs> we're not absolute enemies. No. We just, no. just disagree. Yeah. So there'd be no civil war if, if Brexit was reversed? Will there be? They said there'd be no civil war because you guys are just having a chat, friendly enough. Well, there might be a big upset. There might be a lot of people disillusioned by politics. Whichever way it goes, there will be people who are disappointed. But the thing is, leave one. Which is true. Can't argue with that. But so on the other hand, would they win again next time? I mean, I think but, they would. But democracy isn't a once and for all question. I mean, yes, if people's minds have changed... We've not implemented the question. We've not implemented... The no, decision what it was, was it was an, it was a piece of advice. It was an advisory referendum, no, and what happens what is, Cameron said. but Cameron that, said one vote, your vote, and if you actually vote, one vote will make that decision. One vote either way, and it is your decision, and we will implement your decision. Is what Cameron said, and, and I, he said put it in writing. And I, ah, yes, in writing, the legal thing. Britain's treaties with the EU are also in writing, but hey-ho, consistency is not a sparkling feature of the Brexit event. One facet of the Brexit event was clear from the crowd. It was the most English collection of people I have seen in central London in years. London has become a true world city over the last few decades, and at an accelerated pace since 2004, when the first group of former Soviet bloc countries became members of the EU. Many people from Poland and the Baltic states took advantage of the EU's rules on freedom of movement and came to Britain. Many never got further out of town than London. When I moved here 33 years ago, London's population was about 6.6 million. Today, it is north of 8.5 million, and most of that increase is foreign-born. Throw in a daily population of close to a million foreign tourists, according to the Mayor of London's office, and the English character of this city completely disappears. But not this day. There were many factors behind the narrow victory of the Brexiteers in the 2016 referendum, but the one that put them over the top was immigration. The majority of the crowd on Wednesday were for having a second referendum in the hope of reversing the first, but a significant minority were for Brexit. Hard Brexit. Just leave. No deal. Let them whistle. Trade under WTO rules, although I doubt many of those carrying signs with trade under WTO rules could explain what those rules are. Many others carried signs saying, we want our country back. They meant England not Britain, and they meant an England populated by the English. Nigel Farage, a leading campaigner for decades to get Britain out of the EU, often uses the word indigenous people of Britain. 
He means native-born, in all its prideful racial connotations, and he equates British with English, something the Scots and the Welsh and most of the people in Northern Ireland would take exception to. There were other reasons for Brexit winning the referendum. Decades of propaganda from the overwhelmingly Eurosceptic press, a considerable amount of it written by the leader of the Leave campaign, Boris Johnson. Before he got into politics, the former foreign secretary, now biding his time on the conservative backbenches in Parliament, was the Daily Telegraph's Brussels correspondent. He pioneered a style of anti-EU reporting. He made up stories that were funny about the EU's imposing regulations on condoms that didn't take into account the size of British manhood, and the EU's attempts to ban prawn cocktail crisps, potato chips for American listeners. None of it was really true. He wrote more dangerous lies, like the head of the European Commission's Jacques Delors has a secret plan to rule Europe. The Commission is the administrative arm of the EU. It controls no army or police force, and it could take over nothing. It has the power of all bureaucracies to annoy by rules that make ordinary life more complicated. No matter, it made Europe seem an enemy. Johnson's heyday as a correspondent was back in the early 1990s, and in the quarter of a century since, the bulk of the British press has followed his lead and used Europe as a convenient whipping boy. One of the hallmarks of this epoch in Anglo-American history is the degree to which society has acquiesced in its own self-propagandization. People believe things to be true because they want them to be true. Many Brexit voters want to believe the stories made up by Johnson and others. So when they were asked, there wasn't much question as to how they would vote. The fact that over the decades, Britain had carved out a special place in the EU. It was not forced to participate in the euro, nor did it have to sign the Schengen Agreement, which created a border-free continent, something that makes sense for the world's largest free trade area, even though Britain derived the benefit of that free trade. This did not come up much in the Brexit campaign because, let's face it, trade discussions are dull. I covered the creation of the euro, as well as the creation of the WTO. In fact, I first met Boris Johnson in Geneva during the final negotiations for the WTO. My brain is still recovering from the experience. It takes a special combination of nitpicking lawyerly intelligence and toleration of dullness to be a trade negotiator. I digress. This week's events have been a celebration of Englishness. There was hypocrisy. The loudest advocates of Brexit and the Conservative Party all ran away from the hard work of negotiating Britain's exit. There's no way to do it without damaging the country. They know it. But having promised that Brexit would be a doddle, they didn't want to soil their reputations with the failure. So they're leaving that for Theresa May, who campaigned for Remain. Other Brexiteers in the Conservative Party and private sector are busy making money, shorting the pound on the currency market as the crisis deepens. Jacob Rees-Mogg, whose posh act has made him as well-known internationally as Boris Johnson, has been moving his hedge fund, Somerset Capital Management's operations, to Dublin which, of course, will remain inside the EU after Brexit. The prospectus for the fund says it's being set up because there's likely to be considerable uncertainty as to the position of the UK and the arrangements which will apply to its relationships with the EU and other countries following its withdrawal. No kidding.
Another aspect of Englishness this week, the love of ritual. There were so many rituals to go through before the actual vote, including the well-behaved, slightly eccentric demonstrations outside of Parliament, the speeches inside the Commons debating chamber, where hundreds of MPs reiterated things they have said many times over the last few years, and then the vote. But because this is an EU-related event, the big moment turns out to have been just another way station to the real crisis event, which could come on the 29th of March, when Britain would crash out of the EU with no deal. Or it might just be a way station before the crisis is doused in a terminal amount of fudge. That is very EU. The extension of Article 50, the section of the EU's most recent treaty, the Lisbon Treaty, which sets out the mechanism by which a member state can leave, is now being discussed. Article 50, written by a Briton, John Kerr, or Lord Kerr, puts a two-year limit on discussions about terms of departure. Theresa May, to prove her bona fides to Conservative Party Brexiteers, sent an Article 50 notice to the EU on March 29, 2017. She had been advised by her civil servants not to do so until she knew what her negotiating positions for exit terms were. She ignored their advice. Now the day approaches, and she doesn't have the support of her own party, the House of Commons, or much of the country. The best summary of the event came from a Greek member of the European Parliament, Stelios Kolouglou, who said Theresa May's humiliating defeat had become a case study of how nationalist demagogy can destroy a country. It will be taught in universities, and it is dreadful to see what is happening. After the vote results were announced on Wednesday and May's withdrawal agreement was rejected by 230 votes, an unprecedented defeat of a government in modern British history, the leader of the opposition Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn, engaged in another ritual, tabling a no-confidence motion in the government. He did not have the votes to win, but no matter, rituals must be acted out. I don't think Corbyn felt that it was a waste of time. He comes from the extreme British left, but is no revolutionary. I don't think he could stand the sight of blood. So ritual or gesture politics is the tradition he follows. He made his gesture. And now, Britain, not just England, at the end of this historic week, is still in a complete muddle. At the demonstration, I ran into Eleanor Goodman. When I arrived in London more than 30 years ago, she was the political correspondent of Channel 4 News, Britain's flagship evening news program. Goodman is one of the great political reporters of her generation. I asked her if she had any idea about what would happen next. You've always been able to have a good source who knew what was going on. But th this, we all end up saying, God knows what's going to happen. It's a nightmare. Every conversation ends. It's a nightmare. Uh, and the only good thing about it is that nobody knows any more than you do as a journalist. Um, you know she'll be defeated. You know she'll probably stand up tonight and say she's going to go back. But you know that won't be enough because Europe has already said it won't make the changes that are necessary to get the Eurosceptics on board. And if she bends over towards the opposition, she'll lose more of the Brexiteers. And that's British politics today. Everyone knew. Nobody knows. Everyone knew May's deal was going down in flames and Corbyn's no-confidence motion would lose. Yet for all that certainty, nobody knows what will happen next with Brexit.
And that's all for this FRDH podcast. You can hear more, lots more at the website, www.goldfarbpod.com. Visit, listen, and while you're there, make a donation to keep these podcasts coming. Thanks.